welcome to FO Podcasts. Those of you who are tuning into this episode of FO Podcasts should know that my guest is Antoine von Achtmeil. Antoine is an investor, he's a philanthropist, he's an author, he's a Dutchman um, who is also an American, a truly a cosmopolitan individual, a transatlanticist in many ways, and a man who coined the term emerging markets. So without further ado, we've talked about China, we've talked about risks to China. Let's touch upon East Asia. And you know a lot about East Asia. Yeah. South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. Are these and by going... the way, Korea and Taiwan yeah. did not fall into the middle income trap. They didn't. They kept, growing. Yeah. they kept growing. And they're in, interest, and they're in some ways, when you land there, as you do quite often, they are far more modern in many ways than the US as well. Some things work much better in those countries. Yeah. Let's talk about those countries, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, even Singapore, or I won't bring in Southeast Asia into the picture. That's a separate yeah. entity. The success stories, in other words. <laughs> yes, the success stories of Asia. Uh, where do you see them going? What's next for them? I see them continue their development into highly sophisticated middle-class economies mm -hmm. that have come to a point where they value not only their prosperity, but also their freedom. Hmm. So you mean they were... I'm mentioning that specifically mm -hmm. because it, it's, you know, if we indeed see a world that is deglobalizing and falling apart into two or maybe three power blocks, mm -hmm. they have to make a choice. Mm. And that choice is going to be very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But the freedom part that I just mentioned, I think will play a very important part in where the decision comes out. All right. In other words, these countries will stick closely to the US, which guarantees global security. It's too early to, it's too tell. Early to say. Really we may see regional alliances. We may there, see there two or three different blocks. Of, we may see a multipolar yeah, world. Yeah, all kinds of Understood. There are too many adjustments there are, that are there, that there are too many scenarios. And, yeah. and okay, you can speculate but not know. Brilliant. Now, so let's talk about Southeast Asia and Latin America and Africa, three places that largely supply commodities. And although that's not entirely true, places like Vietnam are very good at manufacturing and are growing and labor costs there are cheaper. And Chinese uh, capital has moved into yeah. Vietnam to manufacture. But Indonesia, not so great in manufacturing, still commodities, much of Africa commodities. Latin America certainly has ridden uh, the economic wave on Chinese demand. Now it has a pink wave. Even Brazil has Lula back in power. So they've gone back to left-leaning governments where are these parts of the world headed? Because you mentioned in the Ian Bremer interview how emerging is now called submerging. And a lot of these... Well, some people, some people, nasty not wordplay yeah. called submerging. I yeah. don't. You, you don't call it. I know you wouldn't. But the important thing is that a lot of these countries are going to go through not just inflation, higher interest rates, but also a debt issue. So where do you see these economies headed? Perhaps I have the perspective of someone who has been dealing with these countries for five decades, for a long time. <laughs> and I always remind people that when we started our firm in 1987, yeah. what did the world of BRICS, which hadn't been called BRICS yet yeah, at the yeah. time, 
look like? You know, Brazil. Soviet was Union was still around. Right. It was two years before the Berlin Wall Russia fell. Russia was part of the Soviet Union behind <laughs> behind the wall. China just come out of the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. Uh, Brazil was an economic mess. Yeah, it, it was, was a, a basket nightmare. So think so, of India was socialist right. at that time. If you think of that time and now, mm-hmm. and look at the difference, mm. it is gigantic. It's night and day. It's well, sir, yeah, close to. In some ways, if some we ways. take out climate change. Well, and, and, and let's face it that millions of people, despite the bad effects that globalization, I admit, has had, mm. that millions of people have been lifted out of poverty but, during this period. Particularly but in China. This, yeah, particularly this was in, in China. This yeah. was in a globalizing world. We, we had decades of globalization. Mm-hmm. And now we're going into decades of deglobalization. So you have to ask the question. How will these countries do Mm. that are better off now than they were before, that are Mm -hmm. better managed than they were before? How will they do in a deglobalizing world? Deglobalizing world. The wind has changed. Exactly. What are their competitive advantages in this new, Mm. what I call the age of electricity? Mm -hmm. What we know then is that some of their competitive edge is going to be based on their resources. You know, let's say Chile has a lot of lithium. Mm-hmm. So does lithium. apparently Bolivia. So does Bolivia. So there's a lot of lithium yeah. in Latin America. Yeah. There's a lot of cobalt in Africa. So they have... In DRC, Democratic Republic of yeah. Congo, the, the, no less. The Congo, I believe, will be the Saudi Arabia of the age of electricity. <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. Well, no, no, I'm laughing because I agree. I only hope there is no Mohammed bin Salman who takes over DRC. It's not a pretty picture. No, not a pretty picture. We'll get to we'll get to the Saudi Arabia and OPEC plus later. Don't think that you can draw a line from Mm. what has happened in the last 20, Mm. 30 years. No, it will be something quite different. Different. And the difference will be based on different competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the value of low labor costs is not as important in the age of robotics. Mm-hmm. The value of certain minerals, particularly rare minerals, is more important Absolutely. in the world of the next uh, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Domestic consumer markets, which were kind of peanuts uh, 30 years ago, are going to be far more important in the future. In other words, their development will be based more than in the past on creating production for their own sake. Mm. So in this world where there is more emphasis on resilience and self-sufficiency, their role is going to be different. But that doesn't mean that they are not likely to succeed. In the end because they are still at a lower level of development than we are, they have a good chance, I believe, of having higher growth Mm. over longer periods than we have. Mm -hmm. And as a result of the fact that they're much better managed, Mm. whether they are pink or not pink, than they were 20, 30 years ago, in fact, they have absorbed some of the famous Washington consensus that we have neglected in the mm. United States, mm-hmm. that as a result of, of that, actually, 
they have a chance of doing better than expected. What is a challenge is, again, coming back to the environment, to global warming. And that's particularly true in Africa, which has made great strides Particularly in, in many ways. North Africa, which yeah, is desert and it's water or stressed. For matter, or for that matter, China, because China yeah. is lacks water desperately. So does India, by the way. And India. Yeah. 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 So since uh, we've talked about... We haven't North, talked about India at all. We'll get to that. So since we've touched upon North Africa, let's move on to Middle East, because it's MENA region is often, Middle East, North Africa region is often... Uh, referred to as one block, which it is and it isn't, but um, there is gas, obviously, in in Libya. Uh, there's gas in Algeria, natural gas. Qatar. There's gas in Qatar. There's gas Syria in Arabia. Azerbaijan. There's gas in... I mean, these are all oil and gas states, and so is Russia. And OPEC Plus has just gone against American interests and bet... Not, it's the first interest, time. not for the first time, but it's interest this time with Russia in a war. So what happens to these oil and gas producers? Do they have a wonderful next two years and then they have a slow winding decline? Or do they continue to be uh, to remain relevant because fossil the fuel to energy? The question is yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. They, they will go into decline. <laughs> no. After two years or three years. For the next couple of years, they got back their main trump card. Mm. They make hay while. when the sun shines. Yeah. And everyone would do that. Yeah. After that, the situation is different. Mm. But let's not forget, no matter what we think of the current kind of men in charge in Saudi Arabia, let's not forget that in some ways there have been dramatic changes that have been taking place, that have taken them away from a pure oil economy. And that's also true in some of the other Gulf states. UAE for pat yeah, in particular, yeah, and Dubai exactly. is a shining example. Is it, is it perfect? <laughs> oh, far from that. Mm -hmm. uh, do they always respect human rights? <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely well, not. Let's not talk about that. Yeah, uh, we could be talking about grim matters till having, tomorrow. Yeah, having said all that, mm -hmm. they have made actually fairly dramatic progress towards being very different countries than they were 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. All right. So they will move away and diversify like others as well. What happens to Russia? Russia is a problem. Mm. A big problem? I would say a big problem. Yeah. And the problem is not just Putin. Mm. Not just Vladimir Putin. It is too easy just as it, is, as it is too easy to blame all of America's problems on Trump, it is too yeah. easy to blame no, all yeah. of Russia's problems on on Putin. Yeah, I mean that is what Glenn and I, Glenn Carl and I, wrote about in December. That yeah. big piece, which you very kindly yeah. read and right. commented on. But I do think that Russia has a problem because it is very competitive in oil and gas mm. and minerals, mm -hmm. but those are, as is the case for the Middle East, less of a trump card in an age that is defossilizing. Mm. And they are not very competitive when it comes to really the areas that count long term, which are technology. Semiconductor chips, for instance. Robotics, 
additive manufacturing, it's, which is not just 3D printing. I read about it in, in, in your book, but they you had can also do it through liquids. Aircraft were wonderful. They had a fairly decent aircraft industry and a good military aircraft mm -hmm. industry. They had, a, they had a fairly good nuclear industry. And they haven't moved at the same pace in all of these areas as other countries. And so they are falling behind in those areas. So I am, and my original specialization was Russian Eastern Europe. Mm. I am more pessimistic about the long-term future of Russia. And of course, what Russia has is nuclear weapons, but it doesn't have a huge economy or a huge population. Mm. I mean, as an economy, that's, you know, kind of Italy plus. Hmm. All right. So Russia will be a big problem. And Eastern Europe, on the whole, would do better once the Russian menace has receded, hopefully. Yeah, it's a, it's a coming to Jesus time <laughs> for Eastern Europe. And I have been surprised by hmm. how determined the Ukrainians were. Mm -hmm. They've just taken Kherson. It's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. And how clear, unambivalent the Poles have been. Mm -hmm. And how most of Eastern Europe that is now within the European sphere has quietly or overtly chosen the European mm. side rather than the Russian side. And I don't think that's going to change. All right. Now... You said we didn't talk about India. Let's talk about India. The IMF president, is it president or chairman? The, mm -hmm. the head of the IMF, right. let's call the her. Managing director. Managing director, yeah. The managing director of the IMF said India was one of the bright spots in the global economy. Uh, where is India headed? India is headed toward a middle-class economy that, at least to the outside observer, is somewhat less free um, than it was before, continues to be quite unequal, but with a floor that is much higher than it was before. I see. Uh, and um, why do you say not as free? Because in terms of ease of doing business, it's become a lot easier. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm talking about freedom of thought as opposed to freedom of economic action. In terms of freedom of economic action, it is it is freer, mm -hmm. no question. But the central control that the Modi government, despite the fact that, as you have pointed out, we should not forget that India is a federal state. It's not a yeah. totally unified state and, and its power is not everywhere. Mm -hmm. It it has managed to do quite well from an economic point of view in terms of growth, in mm. terms of transforming the economy to a modern economy. In infrastructure of, building, yeah. bringing back manufacturing. Bringing back manufacturing, infrastructure building, uh, really becoming the back office of the world mm. in, in, in many ways. And pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals. Uh, vaccines it, 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 too. Uh, all of that they have been very successful at in a combination of having some terrific entrepreneurs and willingness of the government to no longer want to control everything, but letting things go. It's a little bit like Deng Xiaoping did 
to China. It's very similar in some ways because Modi right. is the first lower caste prime minister of yeah. India. He comes from a trading caste. He's yes. not a Brahmin like right. Jawaharlal Nehru, who right. was a socialist right. Right. through and through. So he believed sure. that profit was a bad word. And so this is a very different government in that sense. Yes. In that sense, actually, um, in some ways, it's a lot freer than any government before. Yes. In that sense, it is. Economic freedom is greater. Uh, freedom of thought, mm. I think, is more impaired and than it was before. Mm -hmm. And this is a country with several hundred Muslims. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Seven hundred million Muslims. Two hundred million. That's what I meant. Several million. Yeah, Seven hundred million Muslims, of course. Two hundred million Muslims, yeah. roughly, give and take. Yeah, and they're not necessarily very happy at the moment. Well, so I think one of the things that the constant narrative that you find in the New York Times, or for that matter, the Washington Post, of India is. Uh, an undemocratic country, which is oppressing Muslims. Well, I wasn't saying that. But, or let's say the deep unhappiness of the Muslims. There, may, there is an element of truth, but there's also an element of exaggeration because what has happened as communists is also that Muslim women cannot be told talak, talak, talak thrice mm -hmm. and put out to pasture. A talak means divorce. They can't be divorced that easily. So yes, there is this sense that a lot of Muslims perhaps feel that they don't matter as much because their votes used to be the deciding factor in elections, and now they are not because the Hindu vote has consol consolidated. But at the same time, religious freedom is largely unimpaired. Everyone gets to vote constitutionally. There haven't been changes. It's still a democracy where the BJP gets voted out and has to fight elections. Perhaps one could say we have too many elections, just like the US, too many and too frequent. But on the whole, the freedom of thought per se has not necessarily been affected by the government. I would say what has been affected has been what has been affected perhaps by the government is uh, a centralization within the BJP itself. So, and this is not just confined to the BJP. This is a cultural problem. The Ahmadni Party is a personality cult. The TMC in Bengal, that's a personality, TMC's Trinapool Congress is a personality cult. So it is, you know, I'm sitting here with someone who was born and raised <laughs> in India, who fought in the Indian army, who knows India far better than I do. Who am I to argue? No, 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 I'm not Having arguing. Having said that, yeah. what I... What I just said was... By the way, I was in the army. I was but, an officer, but, but not, not yeah. IPS in and, the... And IPS, yeah, yeah. But what I said was not based on what I read in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. It is based in part on my own observations, yeah. uh, having gone there for many, many years. And You've been a regular on, visitor. You went there for a long right. tour recently. Right. And based on what I hear from my friends mm -hmm. and, and people I know mm -hmm. in, in India who have expressed some of these concerns... Mm. Uh, while recognizing a lot of the success. Mm -hmm. So economically... And in the end, mm -hmm. from a geopolitical point of view and looking at it from the point of view of the United States, it's obvious mm -hmm. to anyone that it is very important to have India as a counterweight 
to emerging China. If China. we're moving to a world where the U.S. is no longer dominant, mm. we are, moving, we are moving to a multipolar world. Then I think logical that we have to pay very close attention to mm. India and really, in a way, keep or try, just as little you can do, uh, to keep India in the camp, as it were, of, of democracies. And some of the points that I raised mm. were concerns that could, you know, put a barrier to it. That's all I was understood, saying. Understood, understood. Uh, but economically, you see India growing, and, yes. and uh, economically, you see India as one of the drivers of global growth. I think there's a good chance that over the next 10 years, mm. when we look back, uh, let's say, from the year 2030, we may very well see that India had a better decade than China. All right. Now... You spoke about inequality in India, which exists, and you said the floor had increased. I know uh, during our many conversations, and I've heard you speak about this to Ian Bremer as well, that you are greatly concerned about inequality. Now, you wouldn't be the first person. There are many people across history who've been concerned about it, because when you get very unequal society, it is societies, it is very difficult to have it's very simple. social cohesion. In the long run, inequality and democracy are incompatible. You can only hold on to a viable democracy if you make sure, mm. and you can do that in a democracy, that the elite doesn't have all the goodies. Exactly. There should <laughs> be a that sense of... the essence of yeah, democracy. There should be a sense of noblesse oblige. And you right. said there is no noblesse oblige or non-noblesse right. oblige today. Right. So... And that sounds very elitist, so I, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. But, but yes, I do think that those who are at the center, the, the winners of globalization, the, the winner, winners of the they economic have an obligation system, to make sure that they keep their country or the world hmm. healthy for their children and grandchildren. Hmm. And that means that they shouldn't be too greedy. Excellent. Well, well, now you're talking like Jesus, indeed, oh. uh, or Muhammad, well, or the Buddha. So, but, but going back to inequality, which is now a serious and major problem. Uh, I was walking here and I saw tents of homeless people along the way. Uh, when I go to San Francisco, my friends there call it Gotham City. How do we address this globally? Well, actually, the success of globalization was that it did address it in one way, and that is to put a better floor, as I put it, mm. under the world population. Well, not the world population, because in Africa it didn't really quite happen. Yeah. But for a large part Certainly of the Asia world benefited. Yeah. In Asia, Asia benefited greatly from America, globalization. Latin America. Latin America too, yeah. fair, to be fair. And yeah. Africa, but perhaps less. So... Let's face it, that was an achievement of globalization, but it came at the cost of rising inequality within countries and mm. within regions. And there's only one solution to that, and that is to redistribute it mm. through taxes and to make sure that at the very least, mm. 
and this is not a Republican or, or, or a Democratic uh, thing, everyone has a fair chance. Mm-hmm. This country was based on... The great American dream. On the great American dream, on having that dream. Mm-hmm. Even though all of us knew <laughs> that that dream was only partially true, mm. that belief was there. If we lose that, it would be terrible. And, and so we have to make sure that social mobility, equality of, of opportunity, and to some extent a redistribution through the tax system happen. Okay. If we don't, we're toast. Okay, so I'll take you up on social mobility. One of the things that ensured social mobility in Britain after World War II were grammar schools. Before grammar schools appeared, it was old Etonians or like the current prime minister, Wickhamis, he went to Winchester, who were in power. One public school lads. And then Margaret Thatcher, grammar school. Theresa May, grammar school. Gordon Brown, grammar school. I could think of a few others, but you get the point. Education, education, education was what Tony Blair said. And now, increasingly, all over the world, Anyone who's affluent sends their kids to a private school, which means that social mobility actually has gone down right. in the first world. Jobs, Terrible development. Yeah, jobs have gone away, deindustrialization. And I've met militia members, you know it, I've, we've talked about it, in West Virginia who talk about this. Uh, I've driven and rightfully across, so. And driven across this country four times. I've gone around Europe and people talk about it. Brexit, for instance was partly a revenge of the left behinds, or as someone put it, the swamp monsters who came out to vote. So taxation is one thing, but there is a lot more to to enable social mobility. It's the institutional re-knitting of Western societies. Wouldn't you agree? Well, you remember I used taxation as the third of a tripod. Yeah. And uh, I used, you know, providing Economic opportunity. Economic opportunity and first. And how do you provide economic opportunity through education? And education. The system okay. that we have in the U.S. of from K to twelve, essentially having a funding of schools that is tied to a zip code, Correct. is highly unequal mm. and will lead to unequal results. Mm. And unrest, and is perhaps. A protection is a protection of the elite. Hmm. And if you then push that through to the top, if just as, let's say, in Great Britain, there's a preponderance of Etonians and Oxbridge people in the government, here there's a preponderance of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, Stanford people yeah. in the government. Nothing wrong with those institutions. Mm-hmm. They're great institutions. With big endowments. Uh, with big, and uh, it's not that they haven't done anything to bring in you know, a, a broader group, but it's far from complete yeah. and far from equal. And so these are the kinds of things that need to be tackled. And why are they not being tackled? They're not being tackled because... Basically, the policy elite somehow thinks that this is a bit of a zero-sum game and that if there is a 
greater opportunity for some people, there's a little bit less opportunity for them. They're not wrong. For their children. For their children, <laughs> yeah. And so and they're not completely wrong. So, in, so, in so, thinking uh, that. so they have behaved. But if they, you don't give that up, yeah. you still mess up the future for your grandchildren. Yes, so, so they're behaving a bit like Dhritarash in the Mahabharata, the blind king, blind in love right. for, his, for his son. That's right. So that has to change. And, and what you, on that note, we can call it a day. We've had a long conversation. You would like to see more economic opportunity, more social mobility and, and taxation to fund all of that. And that is the challenge for the West. And right. in fact, that is the challenge even for India and China and Japan and everyone else. This crazy idea of cutting taxes to make things better mm -hmm. has got to be changed to recognize that Yes, it's perfectly appropriate to have taxation as a tool of distribution. That doesn't mean you have to make it punitive. I'm not arguing for that. You're not arguing for 90% no. marginal rates, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a marginal change in the marginal tax rate system. And along with that, you probably would also argue institutional reform, wherein bureaucracies also perform and unions or let's say teachers unions don't keep standards down and all of that i'm sure you know both go together in no a way no question that 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 uh, teacher unions were part of the problem mm -hmm. they were part of the problem during covid and they were part of the problem before covid mm -hmm. and so it's one of the things that need to be addressed and education is cannot be viewed in isolation it, it takes place all of that we know brilliant Antoine, what a pleasure, what an honor, great to speak with you. And I look forward to speaking with you very, very, very soon. This is Atul Singh signing off for FO Podcasts. And you were listening to Antoine von Achtemeyer.